welcome to episode 10 of Trinity Reconnected. My name is Jerry Foley. It's another global edition as I catch up with three more 1982 graduates from Trinity College in Dublin. With the world's economy in turmoil, what better time to catch up with three guys who spent their lives overseeing and investing in long-term economic and business trends. So let's meet them starting in Dublin. Say good evening, Rory. Um, so I'm Rory Gillen. I actually left in 1981, Jerry. I, I didn't complete the fourth year. Um, reason for that is that I always had my sights set on the stock markets one way or the other. And therefore, that's where I headed. Uh, at the moment, I'm, I, I run a small little company, an investment intermediary in Dublin called Gillen Markets. Let's go to Frankfurt and meet Gabriel. Gabriel, your name and title, sir. Hello, uh, this is Gabriel Fagan here. So after uh, graduating from Trinity, I did a master's degree in uh, UCD in economics. Then I joined the Central Bank of Ireland as an economist, uh, and I worked there for about seven years in Dublin. Then I left Ireland in 1992, and I took up a number of roles in institutions which were the forerunners of the European Central Bank in Basel and in Frankfurt. Uh, in 1998, I joined the ECB itself when it was established and had a number of roles there in the management. So after 20 years in Germany, uh, we had decided we might need a change of scene. So I decided to return to Ireland for a short period of two years where I returned, in fact, to Trinity and was lecturing in economics as well as doing a PhD in economics. And then thereafter, I went back to the ECB for a short period and I was headhunted to be chief economist of the Central Bank of Ireland, a role I occupied for about three years before retiring. Well, very impressive all round, and we're about to be impressed a little bit further when I say hello to Harry, who is in LA. Good evening, everybody else. Uh, my name is Harry Hartford, and I did graduate in 1982, and um, a little bit like Gabriel, I went I did a master's degree in economics, studied in the United States, returned to Ireland in 1984, and spent 10 years working for the Bank of Ireland Asset Management. In 1994, I was lucky enough to get, I can't remember whether it was a Morrison visa or a Donnelly visa, uh, but whichever one it was, uh, moved to, the, to Los Angeles in started with a small investment management company that morphed into a very large one courtesy of an acquisition by Merrill Lynch and in 2001 left Merrill's and set up an investment management company. <clears throat> Today we manage about $45 billion in long-only equities all over the world. You slip that in, I'm going to repeat that figure, $45 billion, because I want to come back to it in a little bit, but I wanted all of us to reel back the clock to the early 80s. Uh, Rory, I remember you saying um, one of your saviors at uh, Trinity Days was the fact that you loved squash, which was a huge sport in Ireland at the time. Even my native Waterford, we had two squash clubs. That's right. Um, but then it kind of disappeared off the radar a little bit. Yeah, it's declined. Uh, you know, it was a minority sport. And I think, you know, I've, I've, I've analysed myself, Jerry, over the years, and you'd say, well, the big sports these days have got even bigger and the money that is in sport today to follow the big sports has meant that it's incredibly hard, I think, to for minority sports to compete 
That's definitely true. Now, Harry, you played a bit of rugby when you were at uh, Trinity, and uh, it turns out that one of the freshers that you played again ended up being the father to a very famous current Irish international and sometime captain. Let's be honest, my rugby was at a fairly middling level. The captain of the side, as best I recall that day, um, was Mark Ryan, who I believe is James Ryan's father. And yes, uh, sometimes captain of Ireland. Yeah, no, brilliant, brilliant player. Uh, Rory, you mentioned in your introduction that you took... What was a big decision, um, quite a brave decision, I suppose, but clearly you knew your mind. You'd done three out of the four years, so you were able to pick up a degree. I don't think the course in college suited me, Jerry. That's no reflection on the course itself and no reflection on Trinity. Um, I, like, I still have great memories and I still have a lot of good colleagues from, from Trinity. Uh, no, it was just a personal thing, and I read a book when I was in college uh, my father gave me it was about the story of this guy in the city of london a guy called jim slater and i was just fascinated by it and i like i you know the sooner i could get into that the better so college was done for me and gabriel i wanted to talk a little bit we'll talk about your work with the european central bank and indeed the central bank of ireland but just sticking with trinity for a second what was it like going back in your phd so you were both a student and part of the lecturing staff. I would say it was these two years were the happiest years of my life in some ways. It was really enjoyable. I had, was completely uh, exempt from stresses of work and all the political infighting and uh, stuff like that. So you could devote yourself to you know s substantive research work. It was really wonderful interacting with younger people. So basically, I was the oldest swinger in town. <laughs> On the PhD program, I was in my 50s. They were mostly in their early 20s. Yeah. And of course, the students uh, were undergraduates. They would all be maybe late teens, early 20s. So they, it was really very interesting to interact with those people and get their perspective on things. Fascinating, uh, yeah. Yeah. And one of the motivations for going to it is that a lot of your colleagues at the European Central Bank, and you were in charge of a, of a, of a big division there, but most of them had PhDs, and you felt, well, I've got to step up to the mark a little bit more. Yes, exactly. It's much more common, in uh, certainly in Germany, France, and other countries, for people to actually have PhDs before taking up a, a professional career. So we Irish uh, economists were a bit undereducated relative to those guys. So mm. it was always gave rise to a certain, you might call it an inferiority complex. Uh, so I, it was always a sort of something that was nagging at me. So I decided, you know, I'd grab the bull by the horns and actually fill that gap in my, uh, my mm. resume. All credit to you. And Harry, uh, immediately after Trinity, you went off to do your master's, but in Oklahoma State University, and you were doing a bit of teaching as well. Taught for a year, um, first and second year economic students, um, doing their you know, typical liberal arts degree that I think most students in the United States start, start out with. Maybe when I, when I retire in the not too distant future, might be something I might, uh, I might do. You've actually stayed connected to Trinity and in particular to the Trinity Economics Department in that you've been a supporter not only as a mentor but also financially to the Student Economic Review under John O'Hagan, uh, the Capstone Project, uh, the Grattan Scholars. Why was that important to you? You know, I had a great education in Ireland. 
And when I, I came to the United States, you know, I've had a fair degree of financial success here and I felt it was important to give back some of the benefits that, you know, accrued to me when I was a student in Ireland and the way I approached it, at least as it relates to this, this aspect of philanthropy, the way I approached it was I wanted to do something that, uh, that you know, I, I knew was that the, the money was, was being well stewarded and uh, I contacted John and uh, it ended up supporting the Student Economic Review, which was, you know, which is his brainchild. Yeah, no, a very important initiative. And Rory, in your own firm, you also have an academy uh, which is open to would-be investors, but also people already working in the financial sector. So how did that come about as part of your own business model? Yeah, well, a little bit like Harry there. Uh, you know, I think you either have an interest in training or you don't. And I found at a certain stage, Jerry, which was around 2004, 2005, that I actually had an appetite or an interest in um, laying out the basic principles of sound investing for re retail investors. And therefore, I developed a course that I I tried to make commercial in some way, but it, it never really was commercial. And recently, I've just I've put it online. It's at a very, very affordable price. It's a nine module course, takes you about six or seven hours to do it. But, you know, if you want to understand how to save other than through bank deposits, right, which is an Irish thing. Uh, and property being the other one, right? Then if you want to understand the stock markets and why they deliver better returns, then, you know, you have to have some sort of a level of training or understanding. And that's really what I've tried to do. But I want to go back to, to Gabriel in Frankfurt. Some recent criticism of central banks, certainly here in the UK, that they've been a bit slow to react in terms of looking at pushing up interest rates in the face of all of the current crises that are facing the economies everywhere. Yes, that's true. It's not just the UK. It's particularly strong in Germany, where there is rather intense criticism of the ECB for failing to respond rapidly to the inflationary pressures. The Fed, of course, in the US has also been heavily criticized. But they, both the Bank of England and the US Fed have moved in, in some ways to, to address the, the uh, inflationary pressure. There is still, uh, the ECB is still, let's be honest, behind the curve uh, when it comes to addressing the inflationary risk. Don't forget, in, interest rates in Europe are now minus 50 basis points, despite the fact that inflation is over 7%. So is a sort of uh, misdiagnosis of the, uh, the, the uh, underlying pressures. So uh, the central banks were probably fighting the last war. The last war they had was uh, lowflation. How can you raise inflation up to the level of the central bank's targets? So central banks were trying a range of uh, instruments from negative interest rates to large-scale asset purchases, and still inf inflation was remaining relatively low. So they were very... Uh, uh, they were very uh, concerned about that. So that made them a bit slow in its response. The other element is, I mean, the, the pandemic uh, shock was very, very unusual. So you had the economies being closed, closed down for most part, and yet large amounts of money being pumped into the economy through fiscal policy and also monetary policy. So that, that the, you had this large pent-up, uh, if you like, a wall of money 
waiting to be spent that, that hit. And that affected uh, commodity prices and everything. And now more recently, of course, we have the Russian invasion, which is added to the inflationary pressure. So it's a very severe uh, situation now. And indeed, we may well not have, we are all old enough to remember the 1970s when we had uh, stagflation, uh, stagnating economic activity and still rising, high and rising inflation. Well, you can certainly see why you were the chief economist at the Central Bank of Ireland. So I was looking at your website today, Rory, and one of your mission statements struck me as you were talking about how the volatility of markets needn't necessarily be seen as a risk. It can be an opportunity as well. Um, is that proving difficult to stand up to measure, given everything that's going on in all of the markets? Um. No, I mean, I think, and I think Harry will probably understand this, you know, in, 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 in as well as I do, which is when you're in markets long enough, you realize volatility has got nothing to do at risk. And the way I try and explain that to, say, a retail investor through a training course is that if you take two companies, a public company and a private company that are in the same industry and have the same risks, the private company shows no volatility in its uh, price because its price is not quoted. So by definition, volatility cannot be risk. So you know it's the business risks, the risk in the individual business, and financial risks if you try and take on too much debt, or the valuation risk, which is you just pay too much. And I think the correction probably we're seeing in markets at the moment is a lot to do with that valuations got very high in certain areas and interest rates are rising and there's a bit of a there's a correction whether it gets deeper or not you know is into the old forecasting game and we try not to do that too much because you know fork you know it's it's difficult uh, but the volatility we always yeah it is something that's uh, something i think you can help the retail investor with to get them to understand that they need a plan they need to take a five to ten year view they need to get rid of debt Simple things like that, Jerry. There's, there's nothing complicated in it. Unlike Rory, perhaps, the lion's share of the investors who have you know, given us money to manage on their behalf or entrusted their money with us are institutional investors, and they have a longer-term investment horizon. And you know, to Rory's point, I think that's a very important component. Um, when you do have... A longer investment horizon, you know, the, the issue of volatility, all things equal, can can be less relevant because, you know, the, the investor anticipates that, you know, there will be ups and downs, but generally over an extended period of time, the <clears throat> ups will be vastly greater than the downs and equity returns be, you know, virtually every other asset class over an extended period of time. So I'm, I'm less worried. I'm, I'm, I'm in the same camp. I'm less worried about volatility. Uh, if, if anything, you know, technology today, I think, is a big contributor to the volatility that we experience. And what's important, I, I think, is to educate people around the nature of long-term investing and to be very, very patient. Patient capital, that's what they call it. 
Okay, let's it. What we normally do, as you know, is go back to 1982, but when there wasn't all that much technology around, and look at some of the news headlines from that year, which are read as always by the former RT newscaster, and that's Clodagh Walsh. Nineteen eighty-two saw the first ever artificial human heart implanted into a patient, designed by a Dr. Robert Jarvik. It was implanted into the heart of an American dentist, Barney Clark, at an operation performed at the University of Utah Hospital. Mr. Clark had told doctors that while he didn't expect to live for more than a few days after the operation, he hoped they would gain sufficient knowledge to benefit future patients. In the end, Mr. Clark lived for 112 days. And back home, the Rolling Stones confirmed that they would play their first Irish concert for 17 years. The venue, Slane Castle in County Meath, where a record 50,000 crowd was expected. Mick Jagger said he was delighted to be playing in such a beautiful venue in Ireland, a country he loved, having lived for a while in Kilcullen. The Rolling Stones playing Slane Castle. And who would have imagined that here we are towards the end of May 2022 and in today's British Sunday Times, there was a big feature article with the Rolling Stones about their latest tour. Quite amazing that they're still going. Uh, I think a few of us did get to some of the famous uh, Slane Castle uh, events, um, some good days. But um, Harry, you were saying um, some damp days as well. The abiding memory I have is that there was always a, a shower that uh, gave you a soaking, and it was always a long, a long day. Um, getting in and out of slain wasn't easy back then in the 80s. <laughs> no. And what about you, Rory? I mean, you've stayed in Dublin, which has become, over the years, a bit of a music hub, I suppose. Did you get into that part of the Dublin scene? Well, I did. I actually went to the, um, I think it was the Bruce Springsteen one, which I think was 1984. I forget. But uh, unlike Harry, um, it was sun, sun the whole way. So it was an excellent day, you know. But I agree, yeah, it, it was uh, torture in terms of trying to get there and get out of there. Uh, and Gabriel, I suppose Slane could have done with a bit of that uh, famous German efficiency. You spend it, half of the year in Germany, half of the year back in Ireland. Mm -hmm. That's right. Do you have to change your mindset when you go from one country to the other? I mean, it strikes me from the outside, they're very different models. Well, indeed. I mean, for example, the issue of punctuality is, is a one major area where there are major differences. If you yeah. make an agreement to meet with somebody at nine o'clock in Germany, they're there at nine o'clock. In Ireland, yeah. they're there around half nine or so. So that's one of the obvious examples. Uh, so that uh, oh, well, we're all, we're all very prompt now, Gabriel. You're you're oh, well, back to the eighties, you know. Well, no, no, no. I'm not <laughs> sure that's the case either. It's, uh, I've experienced this in the more recent years. But anyway, I think that's one one element. Uh, I think that as well. Uh, you know, actually, I would say that Germany is a, an easy country for Irish people to live in. The Irish are very, very popular there. They even did a survey once and they asked the Germans, who is your favorite nationality? And the Irish came top of the list, oh. which is quite extraordinary. Uh, so there is a certain cultural compatibility. I think Germans also are very appreciative 
when they look at the history of the Irish monks and all that they have done over the years in uh, bringing Christianity and learning whatever to Germany. So there is a, and of course, Ireland is a very favored holiday destination. The, yes, uh, yeah. Uh, and one of the products, you'll go to any German supermarket and you'll always find the uh, Kerrygold or what it's called. And basically, they'd advertise this as the gold of the Green Island. So essentially, that's the marketing slogan. It's actually the number two selling butter in the United States. Mm -hmm. it's wow. Wow, isn't it? And Harry, just while you were talking about the United States and different cultures, you've had quite the week because I always appreciate everybody taking the time to join in these conversations. But you had a particularly tricky week because you were in Australia and in Melbourne, got struck down by COVID, and getting out of Australia to get back to your home in LA was quite tricky. It was. The, the authorities in the United States require a negative COVID test. Don't, don't ask me why. It's not as though there aren't loads of people crisscrossing all over the US on airplanes with COVID, but in order to get in, you need a negative test. And Fortunately, I managed to test negative on Saturday and got got the plane out a week after I was scheduled to come home. Unfortunately, I didn't have a, a bad dose of the of the virus. It was more a bit of a sore throat and um, you know a little runny nose for a couple of days, and that was it. One last one, uh, Harry. I can't let you go without noticing that your office address in LA is on Santa Monica Boulevard which uh, sounds pretty impressive. Is it that impressive in reality? It, it's, it's a decent location. I get to see the ocean on one side and I get to see the Hollywood sign on the other side of the building. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there's the, the issue that I, I think resonates with most people in L.A., the greater L.A. basin at the moment is, is homelessness. And uh, there's certainly plenty of that evidence in, in the neighborhood in, in, in general. Um, but... Yeah, it's it's on it's on Santa Monica Boulevard, but not quite in Santa Monica. And Rory, uh, that's something. The whole question of housing and homelessness. We've covered some big topics, so we don't really have time to go into such a serious issue. But unfortunately, it's something people in Dublin are very familiar with: the ongoing struggle to deal with homelessness and housing affordability. Yeah, well, I don't have any particular answers to it myself, Jerry. Other than you know, when you when you price first-time buyers out of the markets, it's it's always a sign of a problem, whether it's a bubble like existed in the 2006 and seven period in Ireland or whether it's now it's just a complete lack of supply, you know. I, I don't have an answer as to how you solve these things in society, you know. And, well, you know, I'd be surprised if you did. I, I'm going to leave the last word to, to Gabriel on that because, again, from the outside, it seems as if the German market, from what we hear, has always been much more affordable, people were able to afford rents in Germany, um, but they're beginning to have their own problems. You read of uh, difficulties in big cities like Berlin now. That's correct. I mean, before, about 20 years ago, the it, property was incredibly cheap. It was easy to find property, easy to get a relatively low rent. Now it's much more much more difficult. Prices have risen quite substantially and rents are rising quite substantially as well. But if I might add, I think the sort of problem, Harry mentioned it and Rory, this is really a big city problem, you know, across 
the Western world, uh, that housing affordability has become a major issue. Prices have risen a lot. Mm. A low interest rate environment has boosted prices as well. Mm. So people are having difficulty, young people in particular, younger people, uh, and actually getting their first uh, on the first rung of the property ladder. Yeah. That's really the big thing. So uh, it, uh, it may be connected with financialization of uh, housing uh, that has taken place. But anyway, it's not just an Irish problem. It's certainly not just a German problem. It's a, sort of a, certainly an Anglo-Saxon global problem in big cities. Thanks, Gabriel. Gabriel Fagan there in Frankfurt. I feel like I've been part of a very interesting and stimulating seminar because Rory Gillen has given his insights from the market and Harry Hartford over in LA as well. So thank you for, for taking the time. I know the sound has been a little bit problematic, but hopefully everyone will be able to hear the wisdom of what was discussed. And that's it for this particular episode of Trinity Reconnected. Join us again in a few weeks' time. But for now, goodbye. <laughs>